You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. And we'll be reading together from chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. You're going to find this on page 774 of the Pew Bible. This morning, we're looking together at chapter 1, focusing on verse 5, but we'll read verses 1 through 5 for context. Hear the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. The last time we were together, we found that Jonah was on board this ship headed for the faraway region of Tarshish. And of course, he was running away from God's commission to preach in the wicked city of Nineveh. And to arrest Jonah's progress and to grab his attention, God hurled this mighty tempest. And the storm, as we've seen, was so fierce that the ship was threatening to break apart. Jonah's rebellion, therefore, had consequences for both himself and the sailors. How different was Jonah's experience from that of the Apostle Paul? Have you ever thought about that? Jonah fled from his ministry by sailing on the Mediterranean. Paul fulfilled his ministry by sailing on the same Mediterranean. Jonah's refusal endangered both himself and his companions. Paul's faithfulness secured the safety of himself and his companions. Jonah received no further revelation while he was on board that ship. Paul comforted, was comforted on board by a word from God through an angel. The angel said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So we discover in comparing these two that Jonah was a source of danger to his shipmates, but Paul was a means of deliverance for his. How very different were the experiences of these two men of God. So this week we consider together two very different responses to the storm. On the one hand were the sailors who became absolutely terrified. On the other hand, we have Jonah who was fast asleep in the bowels of the ship. 
And these were two different responses growing out of two very different dispositions. So the first thing for us to consider from the text is the response of the crew, of course. It says the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. <laughs> now, these were seasoned sailors who were not easily frightened by storms at sea. I'm sure Rob can attest to this. Such men were, on the whole, a brave lot with sturdy dispositions. But on this occasion, the entire crew to a man was absolutely terrified. And so what was happening on this voyage was anything but ordinary. They may have been pagans, but they knew enough to detect that something here was unusual. Even these men could perceive that this was not a typical storm. It arose suddenly and it raged so fiercely, and their knees were weak and their spirits began to be feeble. And of course, few things inspired more fear even in the Jewish heart than storms at sea. Think of the raw power of a violent lightning strike near the mast of the ship. Or the deafening crack of thunder as the waves overwhelmed the deck. It could send and often did send the ship and its passengers down to Davy Jones' locker. But this particular mighty tempest was especially fierce and it was ripping the ship apart. And I think it displayed God Almighty in a very tangible way, his infinite power. It was God who was speaking. His voice was loud and the sailors were frightened. And as a result, the text tells us that each man cried out to his God and how typical is that of the natural man. He will not pray until he's frightened. He's not interested in religion until he's scared. All seemed lost, the storm was too much, the ship was about to sink, and all they could do was cry out for help to their false gods who were powerless to do anything. The men had some uneasy feeling that one of their gods was responsible, but their false religion, as you can see, was worthless. Perhaps they thought that whatever the gods were doing, it was of no help whatsoever. And of course, despite their desperate cries, the violent storm still raged. So first, what this illustrates, I think, is the reality of mankind's innate sense of deity. In every soul, there is the recognition, however deep, of God's existence. Everyone knows instinctively that God is the maker of heaven and earth. It is the sense of deity. It's how we're wired as human beings. It's part of the image of God. Isn't this what the wise man told us in Ecclesiastes 3? God has put eternity into man's heart. Therefore, man knows deep down that he is a creature who depends upon this God. He knows he's not his own master. Deep down, he knows that he himself is not a God, even though he wants to be. And there is that innate sense of deity placed there by the deity himself. And of course, that sense may be more or less intense depending on the person. And some conscience is so seared that the sense of deity is almost eradicated. 
but it's still there. All it takes is the danger of a storm to revive it with force. The atheist is often found praying to God when he's trembling in a foxhole, right? What do they say? There's no atheists in a foxhole? Each person has the sense that there is a power controlling all things. It's an almighty power that's not and cannot be controlled by men. And you and I are utterly dependent upon him. He's directing all of human history. And despite man's attempts to rid his life of this God, he senses the divine presence. We are in the grasp of an infinite being who is, we're told, a consuming fire. It's a deep feeling. One might even say it's an intuition placed there by God that we live openly before his eyes. And the sailors on this occasion were manifesting this distinct sense of deity. And of course, with the entrance of sin, this sense of deity has been distorted and perverted. So while sensing the Lord, the unbeliever attributes the Lord's glory to another. Danger arouses the sense of deity, but apart from grace, it's directed to false gods. And that's idolatry. We're prone to idolatry. We're disposed to false worship. Paul says fallen man is prone to exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Man's enslaved to it. And these sailors, sensing deity, worshipped idols. And we find the sailors' cries resulted from the terror of a storm and not the faith of the saints. They had no trust in the Lord. They had no true knowledge of the living God. But as we will see, in the midst of judgment, the Lord often extends mercy. And it's no different here. If you look down at verse 16, you'll see that it says the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They witnessed his power in the tempest, and they recognized his justice with respect to Jonah. And they also experienced his goodness in delivering them from the storm. And thus, by divine mercy, these mariners came to realize that Jonah's God is the only true God. They venerated the Lord. And they resolved to worship him and him only. Verse 16, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I don't know what they sacrificed. Perhaps it was a victim that had been intended for food. Whatever it was, here was this expression of their newfound faith. They were trusting in the Lord and they were thankful for the deliverance that he gave and wished to symbolize the atonement for their souls. So do you see? God overruled Jonah's disobedience for the good of the lives of these sailors. The prophet meant it for evil, but the Lord made use of it for good. And it reminds us that God is able to turn even the worst things toward the best purpose. Did he not? overrule the worst sin in history for the greatest blessing of all? You remember what Peter said to the Jews? 
This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Christ's persecutors nailed him to a cross as an act of grave sin and folly. And yet God used that crime to accomplish the great salvation of all of his people. Justice was satisfied, God and man are reconciled, and sinners are saved. And therefore, anybody who trusts in Christ may receive the gift of eternal life. That's a promise. <laughs> it makes no difference who you are. It makes no difference what you've done. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin and every kind of sin. So that was the response of the crew and the blessings that ensued. That's the first thing. But then we go to second. The repose of Jonah. Look what it says. Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. I think this shows that Jonah was a believer who was deeply depressed. You know something often people struggling with depression go to sleep as a form of escape. The burdens of life weigh them down. Nothing cheers them up. So they snooze. In Jonah's situation, his disobedience to the Lord led to a deep depression. And as the wise man teaches us, by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. Jonah had rejected his commission. He was fleeing from God. He was defiant and disobedient. And as a fugitive, these things were weighing oh so heavily upon his soul. That is to say, his conscience was tender and it was sharply accusing him. He keenly felt that everything between him and his God was wrong. And the relationship that he had enjoyed as a prophet was now being severely strained. And his sense of God's favor had left him. Mind you, not God's favor, but his sense of it. Because the Lord never removes his favor from those upon whom he set his love. And yet the believer may lose temporarily a sense of God's love for him. It might be an illness. It could be temptation. Obviously sin. Either way, his assurance begins to wither. But the believer is never left without such a presence and support of the Spirit of God as keeps him from sinking into utter despair. Because God has said, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And here we have Jonah leaving his homeland, abandoning his post, turning from his ministry. And on that ship, he must have been struggling with all kinds of fear and anxiety. And God's hand was heavy upon him. His strength was being dried up. So it's no surprise to me that Jonah was sleeping. The man was exhausted. He was depressed and burdened with a sense of guilt and failure. But even in that condition, mind you, the Lord did not abandon him or forsake him. Because our God is bigger than that. And he knows how to reclaim his children. The psalmist says, the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. 
you know something, this storm was difficult. Jonah's conscience was sharp. All things were converging together in his life. And it was severe discipline. But our gracious God didn't forsake him. He was not given over to death. He would be swallowed by a fish. I guess that's pretty bad. And that must have felt like death. He later said, I cried out of the belly of Sheol. It was a deep, dark, dismal pit, I grant you. And that's where disobedience leads. But our Savior is so gracious that he does not and will not leave us in the pit. Out of mere love and mercy, he delivers us and brings us back home. And I want you to see here how God uses the same event to convert some and to reclaim another. These pagan mariners would hear Jonah's witness to the true and living God. He said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And there was probably more that he said to them. So that they came to understand that it was Yahweh, the covenant God, from whom Jonah was running. And so at the same time, in the same event, God converted pagans and reclaimed a prophet. And I think it's important to see that the Lord did not leave Jonah alone. Didn't give up on him. The storm may have been frightening, but if being left to oneself is eternally fa fatal, right? Let's not forget those ominous words in Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them up. If the Lord himself gives up on somebody, there is no hope. Here, God did not give up on him. He could have. He should have. But God's love intervened. Jonah's chastisement was God's way of bringing his disobedient child home. And it was difficult. There would be a season of trial, and Jonah was depressed, and so he fell into a deep sleep from which not even a tempest could awaken him. And so one of the things I want us to figure out here is the redemptive purpose of God, which is bigger and better than we can imagine. I think we should appreciate the sovereign grace of God toward unworthy, undeserving sinners. He converted pagan mariners, he reclaimed a Jewish prophet, and he spared the wicked Ninevites. That's grace. Ignorant pagans and a disobedient Jew and lots of exceedingly evil heathen. And I think it helps us better appreciate the psalmist's wonderful statement. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. So rich is his mercy and so abundant is his grace that we're told there that his redemption is plentiful. By death, Jesus satisfied fully the justice of God so that he can forgive the greatest of sinners. His justice will not and cannot prevent the pardon to be given by the judge. And you ask the question, why? Well, because Jesus paid it all. So nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to his cross I cling. 
Isn't that the solid foundation of the prayerful plea of the believer with God? Lord, if you save me by Christ, your justice is fully satisfied by his blood. But Lord, if you send me to hell and require the satisfaction from me, you'll never receive it since I can make only the smallest of payments. I could lie in hell for eternity and still not pay the full amount of my debt because I know that to be ever satisfying is never to satisfy. Besides, Lord, you receive more glory in receiving it from Christ than requiring it of me because one drop of his precious blood is worth more than all my blood or the combined blood of the whole world. That's what can assuage the conscience of a poor sinner who feels the gravity of his sins. You ask, can a sinner like me be forgiven? <laughs> yes, of course, if you trust in Jesus. God loses nothing by forgiving the worst transgressors because there is plentiful redemption. He is forever glorified in the salvation of guilty sinners. And since this is true, how important is it for every soul to seek refuge in Christ? You and I can't make the least satisfaction for our debt. No one else can either. And yet there are so many who try, aren't there? They trudge along trying to be good while sin makes them miss the mark. And trying but failing to reform on their own, they loathe themselves as they stumble. Because no one keeps the law, it is a perfect law and requires the utmost perfection of every duty and the least degree of every sin, forbids it. So no matter what a person does, he or she cannot satisfy God for things done against him. Let them do their penance. Let them cry their tears. Let them sacrifice anything for their sin, even their firstborn, as we read. You and I can't compensate for the least of our sins, not even an idle thought. God's law is so strict, so severe, so unyielding, that once broken, it demands death. And all the grief and sorrow and self-punishment in the world can't satisfy its high demand. But one act of true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ pleases God more than anything else. We're told by the writer of Hebrews, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better word than the blood of Abel. So the Christian can be assured that the Lord Jesus will preserve him or her to the end. As Peter tells us, by God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, it's God's great design in the gospel to exalt and glorify his own son. In all things, he would have the Lord Jesus Christ to be preeminent. And therefore, the Christian must fetch his supplies from the fullness of Christ. And in that way, Jesus gets all the glory and the praise. 
Nathanael said to Philip as he read, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Nathanael discovered, like all Christians know, that infinite good came from Nazareth. We depend upon Christ for grace and strength, for wisdom and salvation, and his spirit enables us to rely upon Jesus for preservation and support. And that's our security, that Jesus guards us through faith. So if God has renewed your heart, if he has given you the gift of faith, be thankful. According to sovereign grace, he's bestowed upon you the richest of all mercies, And if you are a new creature in Christ, you are very special to him. So exceedingly great is God's power that you'll never fall away. How deeply grateful shall we be for the gospel? In Christ, there is a remedy as deep and as wide and as high as the disease of sin. And there is no Christian who should fear looking at his sin if at the same time he looks at Christ. He is our high priest. He is our substitute who suffered in our place. He is alive and well in heaven, even now making intercession for us. And this means that he is able and willing to accept you and me. If only we come. So sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints and give thanks to his holy name. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we ever thank you enough? We're grateful for his perfectly obedient life in fulfilling the requirements of the law and for his sacrificial death and satisfying all the demands of justice, and for the Holy Spirit who enables us to trust in him for the salvation of our souls and the enjoyment of eternal life. Please receive our praise, for we sing it with thankful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. For listening, for more information or to connect with us, visit us at redeemerohio.org.